We're reading here from the Congressional Record remarks made by Honorable Joseph M. McDade, Representative of Pennsylvania, in the House of Representatives, Wednesday, August 13, 1969. Mr. Speaker, on the 16th of July, it is estimated that more than one-half billion people all over the world watched the beginning of the flight of Apollo 11, which was destined to land mankind on the moon. It was not only the fulfillment of eight long years of planning since Apollo first was conceived, but it was the fulfillment of the dream of mankind to stand upon another celestial body to look across the universe at the Earth. The Apollo space vehicle must indeed be considered a wonder of our age. I am sure that my colleagues are aware that this was not the first flight of the Apollo, it was tested thoroughly for every phase of this mission. I am proud to say that the flight director of the first Apollo mission was a fine gentleman from my congressional district, Mr. Glenn Lunny. Here is a man who is dedicated and intelligent, typical of the splendid men and women at NASA who started with a dream and brought that dream to its fulfillment in what might be described as the most historic event in the history of mankind on Earth. Mr. Lunny and his family have been honored in my congressional district, and the honor is certainly deserving. I am sure that all my colleagues join me in offering our warmest congratulations to Glenn and to his splendid colleagues in NASA for the part each one played in giving this nation such distinction in the eyes of the world. Representative McDade continued, Many years ago, upon the death of Sir Isaac Newton, the poet Alexander Pope wrote Newton's epitaph. Nature and nature's law lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be, and all was light. It would take another Alexander Pope to find the words to describe the excellence of these splendid men. All we can do is to behold and to admire. With permission, Mr. Speaker, I will append herewith two articles in the Scranton Tribune and in the Scranton Times concerning Mr. Lunny. I know everyone will be delighted to read about this fine man. From the Scranton, Pennsylvania Tribune, August 9, 1969. A report by Bob McCarthy. It was overwhelming. This was the reaction of Glenn Lunny a flight director for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, to the hero's welcome he received upon his return to his hometown of Old Forge Friday. I had been told there was to be some kind of reception, he said, but I didn't expect a parade, the speeches, and all those people. I can't tell you what it felt like to see all the American flags flying. The gala reception for the man who played a key role in the Apollo 11 moon mission began with a large delegation that met Lunny at the DuPont exit of the Pennsylvania Turnpike at 4 p.m. after he and his wife Marilyn had landed at the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Airport after a flight from Cleveland where Mrs. Lunny's family resides. The Lunnies were escorted amid cheers through DuPont, Avoca, Durier, and Music to Old Forge, where the group met a large parade, which Lunny described as quite a surprise. 
The parade, organized by parade marshals, made its way to Old Forge Borough Stadium, where the mayors of more than a dozen communities and a crowd of several thousand proud residents were on hand to greet Lunny. The mayor of Old Forge presented Glynn with a proclamation making Friday, August 8th, Glynn Lunny Day in Old Forge. A report from the Scranton Tribune, August 9th, 1969, as appended by then-Congressman Joseph McDade within the congressional record of August 13th, 1969. On March 19th, 2021, NASA paid tribute to legendary flight director Glenn Lunny, who died Friday, March 19th, at the age of 84. Lunny was a flight director for the Apollo 11 moon landing mission and was lead flight director for Apollo 7, the first crewed Apollo flight, and Apollo 10, the dress rehearsal for the first moon landing in NASA's Mission Control Center in Houston. He led the mission control team credited with key actions that made it possible to save three Apollo 13 astronauts aboard a spacecraft disabled on the way to the moon. Throughout his career, he was a key leader of NASA human spaceflight operations, beginning as a member of the original space task group at NASA's Langley Research Center, established shortly after NASA was formed to manage America's efforts to put humans into space. After moving to Houston, the task group eventually became the Manned Spacecraft Center, now NASA's Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center. Glenn was the right person for the right time in history. His unique leadership and remarkably quick intellect were critical to the success of some of the most iconic accomplishments in human spaceflight, said Johnson director Mark Geyer. Although he retired from the agency many years ago, he is forever a member of the NASA family. While he was one of the most famous NASA alumni, he was also one of the most humble people I have ever worked with. He was very supportive of the NASA team and was so gracious in the way he shared his wisdom with us. Lunny received the Presidential Medal of Freedom as part of the Apollo 13 mission operations team. He was born November 27, 1936, in Old Forge in Lackawanna County. NASA, remembering Glenn Lunny at his passing in a release from Kelly Humphreys of the Johnson Space Center in Houston. WVIA-TV will pay tribute to Dr. Lunny this Friday, March 26th at 7 p.m. in an encore presentation of a one-on-one -on -one interview with Bill Kelly from the State of Pennsylvania series Archives. In 2015, we had a chance to speak by phone with Glenn Lunny, and we began with his roots in the region. I was born in what was called the Taylor Hospital. It's on the north end of Old Forge before there was an open stretch to uh, Taylor further up the road. Uh, I always thought of it as Old Forge, but it was legally Taylor, Pennsylvania. That was in 1936, uh, November 27, 1936, a uh, long time ago. And uh, we lived in Old Forge for a good while on, on Main Street. I think the address was 301, but that's in my head for some reason. And I didn't know much about what was going on at that age, but we did have multiple generations in the same family lived in the same house. My grandmother and then my parents, of course, were there. And then I, as the first of three boys born before the war, and my sister born after the war. So we had a time there before the war 
and uh, I was probably too young to develop much of an impression of anything, although a couple of things stick in my head. I remember uh, outhouses because they're memorable when you have to use them, and we did. And uh, I remember, for example, on Halloween, I remember people would show up, and I remember somebody coming. One fellow was dressed in a Superman outfit, and another was a young woman, and she sang God Bless America for us on Halloween. And uh, let me tell you, Two youngsters older than me, but you're two young people at your door singing God Bless America uh, as part of their donation to the uh, Halloween celebration that we had there. The house was big. It was a two-story house. There was a lot of room in it. We all had basements. And I remember the people next door had a big, I don't know whether it was a pig or a hog, and I'm not sure I know the difference. But anyway, they went about uh, slaughtering that poor animal one day while while I was there to listen to it, and boy, it was quite an awful time. The poor animal uh, struggled and struggled and made a lot of noise while he was being dispatched to turn into food for everybody's table, but that was quite a time, and uh, the people were busy. We had horse-drawn carriages would come down the street carrying blocks of ice. Uh, We did not have refrigerators. We had what we called ice boxes, and they were like your modern ice cooler, except they stood up and looked like an appliance rather than just a cooler like we have today for carrying around or dragging on wheels. But that was the way the, um, that's the way the food was kept in the houses. It was uh, blocks of ice delivered every morning or thereabouts by uh, a horse-drawn carriage then brought into the house, and that was what kept the food fresh, and it was quite a time. The doctor made house calls, came by and visited us, just to be sure everybody was okay. We didn't. Be, I don't remember too much about having to do anything with him in those days at that age, but uh, he did make house calls and came by our house as we needed it. And we were interrupted in a way in terms of Old Forge life once the war got started because soon after that my dad uh, moved down to Bethlehem where he worked at Bethlehem Steel for I don't know how long. But my first real memories were of Philadelphia. We moved to Philadelphia, and Dad worked in the Navy shipyard down there. He was a a welder and a a cutter of of metal, and uh, he worked on building submarines. And he did that until they drafted him towards the end of the war. And it always made a big impression on me because Dad was probably doing something more valuable to the war effort in the shipyard uh, because he didn't didn't do very much when he got in the Army uh, because they sort of lost his papers. So he didn't get paid the whole time he was in the service, which was the last six months before the war ended. But we then moved back after after the war. We moved back. We lived in Westside, West Scranton for a while, and I went to St. Anne's. And then we moved back to uh, the family home in Old Forge. It was in what was called Rendon. It was on a street, is officially River Street, but it was known as Goose Alley for some reason to all the people in town. And uh, we lived on Goose Alley, where the geese fly backwards was the expression. For some reason, people thought of Goose Alley as where the geese flew backwards. I have no idea where that came from, but people had fun with it. So by this time, my brothers and sister two brothers and my sister, we, we all went to uh, St. Anne's, and then we moved down to Old Forge, and I ended up staying in the high school with Scranton Prep. My brother uh, Bill followed me to Scranton Prep, and then my brother Jerry stayed and went to school in Old Forge High School, and that's where our sister Carol went, too. 
she was a little behind us by about 10 years, behind me anyway, by 10 years. And it was a, it was a, it was a remarkable time. I remember playing basketball and football, you know, sort of tag team catch football and basketball. We didn't have any real, we didn't play on a court. We played outside and dribbling on the rocky ground. And the same way with football, we played out in the fields. But we really enjoyed it. We got a lot out of it and loved being there. And you learned about teamwork, didn't you? About pulling together for a cause. We had a lot of that, pulling together to play well and then ragging on the other team if you managed to pull off a victory or suffering the same ragging if you managed to lose. But it was all good fun. And uh, we had a mixed collection of kids, various ethnic groups. Uh, Ethnic groups were big at the time. And a lot of people identified very much more strongly with the ethnic group that they belong to than they probably do now. But there was the Irish group and the Catholics and then the Polish group and uh, so on. And there were even some people who, who went to a Russian church somewhere, a Russian Orthodox church. But it was an interesting time. And hearkening back on it, the, the ethnic lines were, were pretty uh, real. People really first identity past their family was their ethnic group. And that was a, that was a long-standing thing, and that's the way it was. Dad always had one of the first things he did when we moved in there was put up his flagpole, and he was pretty regular about getting his flag up, especially on on holidays or special days of note, Labor Day or Memorial Day. And we would all go out with him while he put the flag up, and so on. Uh, I was in scouting there uh, when I was in West Granton, not so much in Old Forge, because by the time I I was in high school and. Like a lot of boys, they stop scouting when they get to a certain age, and I was out of it by the time uh, we moved back to Old Forge. It was, just, it was just a, it was a wonderful time, and when I think back on it, it always, it always has a glow around it for me. You know, it just seemed like such a magical time, even, even through the war. Uh, people were all cheerful. Uh, they were always uh, pleasant with each other. They were all friendly. I remember all the flags that would show up in the windows of people. They had somebody in service, and then sometimes there were indication that the person had been killed. And uh, they changed, they had another color or something for to identify when uh, someone had been killed in the family. I remember a large amount of patriotism, large amount of uh, faith in the people, sometimes different churches, but nevertheless, they're big on the faith in God uh, they were big on uh, love for their country, and they were big on love for life. I mean, people lived, uh, they didn't travel around the world or anything like that, but they lived relatively fully and enjoyed themselves, enjoyed their friends, and all all uh, holidays were an occasion to round people up at somebody's family home, and it was always so much fun and so heartwarming to see the interaction of people and see how, how much they cared about the faith, family, and friends around them, and that's what dominated their lives. We used to joke about it a little later on because my mom was really religious about us going to Mass every week and so on and so on, and uh, we also really got to kid her later on in life because she had this thing about getting to church early. She thought getting there about 30 minutes ahead of time was the right time to show the proper respect for coming to church. So it, it, later in life, she was still doing that. And whenever we were visiting back home, whoever was visiting would send a little message out to the rest of the brothers and sister that 
mom is still doing her 30 minutes before routine and even late in life, even very late in life when she's very much a senior. When you went back home, you had to expect to be in church 30 minutes before the service began. We loved it. I mean, we, you know, it just seemed so special to us. And uh, it was home, you know, the mountains on both sides. Uh, I remember one time we had a fireworks factory over on East Hill, I guess, eastern side. And one day it blew, and, uh, you know, everybody knew what it was right away and scared the kids. We were scared of it, but we learned that, you know, if you're doing something dangerous, you got to be careful. And it was good training for the men who were in the mines. They knew that. They knew that from day one in the mines, and, of course, we youngsters learned it as we went along. And there it was, a big cloud of smoke blowing up in the other side, and it was the factory going up again. I think it had happened a couple of times, but I just remember one time seeing the smoke over there where it was and being impressed by it, being impressed by it. So all in all, you know, it's, I just I just remember it being warm and glowing and uh Always good people around, always patriotic people. The men didn't talk much about it, but but the moms always saw that everybody went to church as they should. And uh, I think that was the case in almost all the families. And when did you start flying your airplanes? Model model airplanes? I used to build the model airplanes. They didn't fly very well, but there was a propeller on them, and we'd... uh, wind up the propeller against a rubber band, and the rubber band was enough when it was released that it would uh, run the prop for a while and the planes would fly for a while. <laughs> you know, they, I, I can't say they were successful, very successful airplane flying, but it was something that I did and became very enamored with the whole business of flight and airplanes. And, of course, during the war, there was a lot of airplanes being displayed to people, the P-38 and the, the Mustang P-51 and so on. And uh, I didn't know what the planes did exactly. You know, some of them did patrols, some of them escorted the bombers, some of them were fighter planes. But they all did different things, and uh, I tried to make models of, of all of them and hang them up in the ceiling in the bedroom. Sometimes my brothers would take a whack at them, but that's uh, it's kind of what I did when I was young. And it did develop into a, an interest in the flying business and you know, it was interesting. Dr. Marmo was the family doctor, who I remember for making house calls, too. And uh, the time came for me to start thinking about what I was going to take in college. And uh, I only knew two people uh, that had been to college. One was Dr. Marmo, and one was a, a relative of ours, Dr. Hennigan. But I visited with Dr. Marmo, and he talked with me, and he asked me about things and what I was good at and what I was interested in. And I think that besides engineering, I was good at numbers, so I thought maybe I could be an accountant. And anyway, when I went over that with Dr. Marmo, he said, Glenn, go for the engineering. I remember that. It was that simple, and uh, it wasn't a lengthy discussion or anything, but he said, go for the engineering. So I did, and a whole bunch of other things happened along the way, but it it was a, a marvelous career that I just kind of right time, right place in terms of what I did to prepare myself. Uh, and I was ready when the when opportunity came along, and I had a chance to go work on the first manned space flight after Sputnik. We had Sputnik in uh, 1957, and then uh, while I was still in school, and then in 1958, the summer of 58, when I graduated, I saw the first drawing of a Mercury spacecraft across my desk, and it was followed by a question, which was, the fellows at Langley Langley Field, which is down by Newport News, 
in Hampton, Virginia, down near the mouth of the Chesapeake. They were um, starting to work on this one-man capsule, that eventually the one that Alan Shepard and John Glenn flew in. And the question was, well, do you want to you want to join in this and help out? So I jumped at that. And so after that, all of my whatever fantasies I had as a boy about the airplanes, you know, something even bigger than airplanes at the time, at least, spacecraft turned out to be a big part of my life. And uh, I just happened to be ready at the time when the country wanted to do that. And we had fabulous leaders, really great leaders. I mean, I, I didn't even appreciate it until later. But I watched them and how they managed people. I didn't, I didn't even talk in these terms in those days. How they did things is what I would probably have thought. And they were remarkably effective at seeing what was coming, getting people prepared for it. And then when, um, when it was upon us, we were ready for it. It was a kind of a, it was a magical start to a career. But again, it started with the airplanes hanging from the ceiling in the bedroom. Uh, and, you know, it's something far beyond a young boy coming out of Old Forge in, in northeast Pennsylvania. Their field didn't even exist when I was a boy, but airplanes did. And, of course, what we did was a big step, a big extension of what went into a flying airplanes, except it was a lot bigger and somewhat more dangerous on the front end because we were flying a lot of airplanes by that time and people were getting pretty comfortable with it. Although the jet engine was relatively new and was just coming into play when I was getting out of college. And uh, it was a fun time. But looking back, it was just a miracle of a variety of different things happening that got me, you know, exposed to good study habits and taking them into the future I was exposed to a work ethic that was prevalent, prevalent amongst the people who, who lived and worked there. And uh, it was expected that you had to work and you had to work hard. Uh, and, and we did. Dad always had jobs for us when we were growing up and kept us busy at them. And a lot, of, a lot of them were, you know, kind of hard physical labor. But he was good. He was good at it. And he would come home at night and stop, take us all down there and look at what we were doing. And We'd talk it over, and Dad would just kind of nod his head, well, pretty good job today. And then the next day, it would uh, be the same thing all over again. So he had a pretty good idea what he should expect of us over 24 hours, you know, so he could look and see what the incremental improvements were since he left the job the day before. And he didn't say very much, but he'd let you know that you'd done okay and you'd done pretty well. And uh, so that always sort of puffed us up with a sense of pride if we could please Dad in terms of work and uh, we knew we were doing okay. You mentioned in your book about the way you discovered when you're doing your space work that you were thinking differently than the other fellas, and you sort of traced it back to prep. Yes, I I do. I, I'm not sure I could explain it to anybody, but I didn't take a lot of technical subjects in high school. I took math and algebra and geometry and all that stuff, but I didn't do much more of anything that the prep was more of a classical education, I guess you could call it. it. Probably would call it liberal arts, but that's not exactly right either. It was what the Jesuits called a classical education. But I, I found that I thought through things maybe a little differently than the people around me. And it wasn't that it was better or anything. It was that it was different. I, I think the, the prep school put a lot into me, and it's hard for me to define what it is, you know, after the fact. But I always felt, always felt that I gained a great deal 
by going to that school. And by the way, it you know it took an extra. It was an extra burden on my parents because there was tuition that had to be paid there. I had won a half scholarship to go there. That's how the whole thing got started from a spelling contest when I was in eighth grade. Somebody saw me and they offered me a half scholarship. And even at that, it was probably a strain for my folks, especially when dad left the mines and went to work for NIBRD. It had to be less money. I don't know by how much, but a noticeable amount in those days in terms of the percentage of downside that dad experienced when he left the mines. But it did teach me a lot, and it taught me how to think, and it taught me how to study, and it taught me to uh, be prepared for things by doing that and by being able to do it again on a different subject. In other words, I learned very good study habits and, and the work that it took to master a subject, and it stayed with me all my life because when I got to, uh, when I got to the space business, you know, it was a wide-open field. We had to invent it. In, in high school, in high school, I was learning languages like, for example, Latin that was called the dead language then because nobody really spoke Latin. They spoke derivatives of it in various countries, but didn't speak Latin per se. So I was learning a dead language, and then later in my life, I was applying what I learned there, which wasn't just language, but discipline maybe and study habits to going into space. I mean, a brand new, completely unknown field to me, for me, when I was, when I was growing up, it just, there was no such thing as that. Airplanes was, was as big as we got in terms of the business of flight and as big as our dreams were. People had science fiction stories, Jules Verne and so on about going to the moon, but uh, nothing was ever advanced to the point where you could think about it in in real terms, that we would actually try to do that. But Sputnik changed all that. Sputnik came along in 1957 in the fall, and it changed all that. And uh, by the time I got out of college, eight months later, the country was moving towards a major response to the Russian challenge of Sputnik, and that was to put a man in space. They did that before we did, too. They did that with Gagarin in orbit uh, in 1961, followed by Al Shepard a month later, but just in a very small suborbital shot. But from there, we pounded out our work in Mercury and Gemini on the way to Apollo, and we gradually matured ourselves and the hardware we were using. And by the, by the time it came to Apollo, we were, we were rolling downhill in pretty good shape. And uh, the Russians had done a number of things, but they never did really seem to capitalize on their early start. And we gradually overtook them, and and in Apollo we did what we did, and they sort of tried to do things like that, but they had some problems. They had a big major explosion one time of a big rocket. Not only was that a loss, but it killed some of their key players who were in the area when the when the rocket blew up. So they lost some people and a lot of capability, and they probably, they, I'm sure, they felt like they lost the race to the moon eventually to the Americans, and, and therefore they backed away from it. They, they didn't continue to pursue it. They, they went in the direction of forming space stations, small, very small space stations in Earth orbit and so on. And quite a time, I mean, we viewed what we were doing as a real part of the Cold War struggle. But, it, you know, it's interesting. The Cold War lasted from the end of World War II to about 1989, so it was about... 40, 45, let's just say 44 years long. 
and uh, the space race started at about the beginning of the second quarter, and by by the time of the first half, we'd already won. Uh, we already won the space race with the landing on the moon, and that sort of at least got us past that being a theater that people were going to militarize and turn into a, a place that would be threatening to the people on Earth, and uh, it never really has has gotten to that. We certainly use it for observations and communications and all that stuff, but we never turned it into a battlefield. And you now partly uh, Apollo had something to do with that, not letting it turn that way. We, we kept it as a, as, a, as a field of competition between the two countries to see whose technology was better. And by the, by the Apollo time, by the time we landed on the moon, our, our technology was superior to the Soviet Union by, by a clear margin. Legendary NASA flight director and Old Forge native Glenn Lunny, who died on March 19th at the age of 84, speaking with us in 2015 in connection with his book, Highways into Space, a first-hand account of the beginnings of the human space program. Part one of a two-part conversation. Also, WVIA-TV will pay tribute to Glenn Lunny with an encore presentation of State of Pennsylvania, and that's this Friday, March 26th at 7 in the evening. In this episode, Dr. Lunny sat down for a one-on-one interview with host Bill Kelly. That's WVIA-TV this Friday at 7 p.m. In addition, the 2019 VIA short take featuring Dr. Lunny, A View from Apollo 11 Mission Control, will air at the conclusion of the interview segment on Friday. But also, this short feature is currently available to view online anytime through the WVIA website, wvia.org, or on the WVIA Facebook page. So please join us tomorrow for part two of our conversation with Glyn Lunny on Art Scene on WVIA Radio. And then this Friday evening at 7, a very special presentation of State of Pennsylvania, a one-on-one conversation with Dr. Lunny, Friday at 7. And then the 2019 VIA short take feature available online on the WVIA website, wvia.org, anytime.